spread out. Man, it's like checkerboard. All right, um, let's open in a word of prayer. We'll bring request. Um, can you turn that down just a hair? I'm getting that little echo. Any, um, any request? H.A. got a good report, so he's healing far as I know, doing well. Um, anything else? All right. Well, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask him for help even in this service. Our gracious God and Father, we thank you for uh, our Lord Jesus Christ that you have sent to be the propitiation for our sins, to satisfy your wrath the expense of your son is really even beyond our comprehension. And yet today we come to the Lord's day and pray that your spirit that you have sent after your son left will guide us and direct us as we open your word and we talk about your word, as we sing praises to your name, as we encourage and fellowship with one another, help us to strengthen each other in the word and in truth. Pray that this time this morning and the time to follow uh, would honor you and honor the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Thank you for H.A. and just a good report he got. Just continue to pray for our church that you would give us wisdom and direction as we move um, into a new year and as uh, we have uh, new programs. Lord, just pray that your name would be honored and Thank you for the blessings that you've done here uh, at Bible Chapel. For the one or so that may be here without Christ this morning, in this service, or the one to follow, we just ask that um, your Holy Spirit would uh, bring about repentance and faith uh, for your namesake. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, last week we started on bibliology, going through our systematic theology outline that at this point only Ty and I know what it is right now. I think we're going into... Uh, attributes of God next, if I remember right. So we'll probably do this week and then maybe next week on bibliology and then move on uh, through. Again, I remind all of us and I remind myself, I hope this isn't just for head knowledge. I, I don't want this to just to be educational, which it should be. But hopefully, even when we talk about bibliology, that it will stir us as you see how we got the word of God and how it came about. And hopefully it will give us a greater appreciation for the, and we'll talk about today about uh, those who who brought the word of God to us, even though we'll, maybe next week we'll talk about inspiration and how it all came about in Revelation. There was still uh, God used human instruments to bring about his word, and it was not always easy, uh, as, as we'll see this morning. So just a reminder, bibliology or canonicity, as it's called, is really simply the study of the Bible. How do we know what about the Bible? What do we know? I did get this uh, corrected last week, and then I messed it up again, but there's 39 in the Old Testament and 27 in the New. Uh, I had issues there. Nick, you weren't here. I changed it this morning and changed it back to the old way. So Chris helped me out, and uh, thank heavens for that. Um, I've got some notes on here we'll talk about uh, in a little bit. We remind you that uh, the Bible was written, uh, probably 40 different uh, authors, uh, three continents, and over 2,000 years. 
So all these 66 books came together uh, by the hand of God, as we'll see next week, moving uh, holy men, as he says, but also through the instrument of, of, of those that wrote it uh, in different phases. Um, the, um, we also um, made note uh, that, the, um, that, that the Old Testament and New Testament, there was more books that could have come out. Probably the Old Testament was uh, finished. Uh, it was finished by the time of Jesus' uh, birth and Jesus' death. He quoted from the Old Testament uh, in the uh, scriptures. The New Testament probably came around somewhere around 380 when it was finished, the 27 books that we consider the New Testament. Um, I was going through last week uh, this uh, chart from Moody about seven reasons to trust the Bible. How do we know the Bible is true? And we look first at uh, Jesus trusted God's word and personally testified of it. And um, we were reminded Jesus quoted from the Old Testament much. And the Old Testament, New Testament writers quoted in Jesus' own case, he said, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me. He's quoting from Isaiah 61, 1 and 2. Because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim the good news of the poor, he has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim the freedom of the captives and the release from darkness for the prisoner to proclaim the year of the Lord. And then he announced today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing in Luke chapter 44, verse 21. So he took the Old Testament and he applied it to himself. Uh, a very, uh, very bold statement for one that uh, would, if he wasn't truly the Messiah or the Son of God. Um, Jesus taught the word of God as law. He says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have come to, not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So he looked back and saw the Old Testament as God's word and something that he came. Of course, we know in his atoning work, he fulfilled all righteousness, didn't he? He, he completely fulfilled uh, the law of God. Uh, the Bible's historical and geographical references are correct. Uh, we talked a little bit about that uh, when uh, when Jesus' birth is announced in Luke chapter 2, the uh, writers are very careful about who was governor and where they came from and geographic locations. And they all match up uh, to the time of history. Uh, historical documents and archaeology confirm the Bible. By the way, if you have a question or thought, just raise your hand or interrupt. I'm just kind of going to go through these. Um, there's the, uh, I said last week, there's an archaeologist discovered the evidence for the destruction of Jericho, which for years thought, people thought that was a myth. They still think it's a myth that the walls fell out, but there's a physical evidence that there was uh, a Jericho. Um, there's also uh, Aramaic inscriptions that said, call up for the house of David and, uh, and many others. Uh, the siege ramp uh, during Hezekiah's time has been found, and uh, it, it is noted. And so archaeology evidence is con continually being found. Um, there's a, a program on it, I think, noon on one of the Christian radio stations or 1230, and they always have archaeology in the Bible. And so they're constantly finding new 
archaeology things that confirm the Old Testament specifically. Um, and so uh, this one was interesting. Uh, Matthew and Mark uh, uh, describe unusual darkness and earthquakes when Jesus was uh, crucified. And the secular historian, uh, his name is uh, Philogon, he wrote that during Tiberius Caesar's reign, around the time of Jesus was executed, it became like the night in the middle of the day, an earthquake shook the region. This is from the history of Jesus. So there's historical evidence, uh, extra-biblical writers that confirm that. Another historian wrote, dreadful darkness covered the land and earthquakes split the rocks in Judea at the time of Christ. So, um, again, things that we people call miracles in the Bible are also confirmed by others. And so um, I'm going to ask, uh, let me see, um, Mick, will you look up Micah 5, 2? And uh, Tammy, would you look up Matthew 2, 1 through, 1 through 6? Matthew 2, 1 through 6. And then... Um, We'll go back, Chris and Becky. Will you, Chris? Will you look up Psalm twenty-two, sixteen, and Becky, John twenty-four through twenty-eight. Twenty, twenty-four through twenty-eight. I should have given these out sooner, and then um, we'll just look at those two quickly here. Um, Jessica, do you have your Bible open? Will you look up Psalm sixteen? 8 through 11, and then one of, Jerry, would you look up Acts 2, uh, 24 through 31. And we'll look at just some of these verses. These are Bible prophecies from the Old Testament that were fulfilled in the New Testament. So the Bible contains hundreds of prophecies, events predicted in the Old Testament, and then really come, you can see them. Um, before Jesus' death, uh, birth, 700 years uh, Micah wrote this. Who's got Micah 5 2? Okay. Yeah, and so the, the Bethlehem Ephrata, which there was two Bethlehem, so the Bethlehem in Ephraim was predicted. Now, who's got, uh, Tammy, you have Matthew. Uh, two, one through six. Isn't it amazing? 700 years and fulfilled perfectly. Um, let me see. Um, Zechariah predicted Jesus would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver uh, in Zechariah chapter 11, verse two, two, 12. And then in Matthew 26, uh, you can read the story of that. 
uh, David prophesied that Jesus' hands and feet would be pierced. Who had, you have Psalms 22, 16. John 20, 24 through 28. amazing prediction that not that crucifixion wasn't even known at the time and then here all of a sudden Jesus not only is he not tied probably tied but also pierced his hands and feet were pierced as predicted Isaiah predicted that Jesus body would rest with a rich man Isaiah chapter 53 9 you can look at that and of course that came true uh, Joseph Arimathea and Matthew uh, took his body Jesus resurrection was also predicted uh, Psalm 16, 8 through 11. Who has that? Would you read that, please? true great passages that we can take comfort in today and then uh, listen to this in Acts chapter 2 24 through 31 (laughs) okay I, I have the same issue at times. <laughs> Acts two twenty four through thirty one. Bring your glasses next week, will you? <laughs> That's good enough. But you could get the, uh, Peter in uh, uh, and, and Acts 2 takes the Old Testament and applies it right to Jesus. 
Anne says that this is what the Old Testament was talking about, especially as he was talking to the Jews there. Um, there's a lot we could talk about um, in, uh, in, in, the, uh, in all this. Um, there, one of the writers wrote, the Bible includes embarrassing information about heroes. One of the arguments that the, uh, they make about the Israel leaving Egypt is that there's no really Egyptian record of it. Well, if you were Egyptians and you're, uh, half your army or most of your army drowned in the Red Sea, would, would you leave a, you wouldn't build a monument for that, right? I mean, it doesn't make sense. No general or no king, whatever, or pharaoh, whatever, build a monument that they were defeated. But um, just some interesting things about the Bible. Uh, these are holy men of God, right? But uh, Jacob, he was a liar and a thief. Um, why would you record that if you were trying to hide anything? The point is, the Bible is very open. Um, Elijah, he hides from Jezebel. He has all the prophets killed. And then next thing you know, he's hiding from from Jezebel. Uh, Moses committed murder. Aaron, his brother, builds his golden calf. After they see everybody drowning in the Red Sea, a few days later, he builds a golden calf, and then the whole uh, bunch of them are dancing and singing and carrying on at the bottom of the mountain. Uh, certainly, if you were trying to write a book to show that things were going well, you wouldn't include all these. David committed murder and adultery. Saul, we, uh, we're going to see... Uh, in 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, Saul, chosen by God, was a complete disaster as a king. Um, Jonah ran from God. Peter denied Christ three times. The great Peter, you know, if you were trying to make him look really uh, strong and powerful, why would you write that in the New Testament? Paul condones the murdering of the followers of Jesus uh, as he sits there and watches Stephen uh, killed. And so... Um, uh, the writer writes, if the Bible were man-made, it probably would not expose the flaws of its heroes. And I think that's a really good argument. Um, the Bible includes multiple eyewitness accounts uh, of, of exactly what happened. Um, Matthew, uh, Peter, John wrote accounts of Jesus' life. Um, and uh, their stories are entirely different. Uh, if they were entirely different, you may not trust them. They're certainly different in certain details. I was uh, thinking this week, um, if you walk into, if, uh, my brother-in-law is a tile setter. If we walked into the Biltmore estate, what do you think he would look at? The floor, right? And I'm, my background's HVAC. Well, I'm looking around, how in the world are they heating this place? I might not even see the floor. We're both of us were at the Biltmore, right? And so if we were recording our experiences at the Biltmore, we would say, Ray and Ray went to the Biltmore, and, I, and my brother-in-law would say, I saw this beautiful mosaic tile, and I would say, and somebody would read the account later and say, well, the other Ray, he didn't even mention the, the tile. Well, that's exactly what happens in the New Testament, that different writers see different things at different times. Um, Chris and I may walk into a gun store, and, and we have, and I can tell you, He's probably going to look at the rifles, and I'm going to look at the pistols. Uh, we were both at the gun store at the same time. He might say, did you see the rifles? I would go, what rifles? Uh, but that's just how people are, and that's how the New Testament was. John, holy men of God, we'll see next week, are moved, but 
they, God allowed them and their personalities to come out and, diff- and see different things at different times. I mean, is Pete? You could probably talk about it, but you, you go to a, a crime scene or you go to a car accident, and you you would ask five different people what they saw, and you'd probably get five different stories, um, you know. And uh, and so that's exactly how the Bible was written. We'll see again next week. God God intervened over this whole process, but He used human authors and their personalities and allowed them to come out and to uh, and to be that. Uh, here, here's an interesting one. The Bible values women and relies on their testimony. That would have never happened in the, old, in the, in the times of Christ. Um, the uh, culture which the Bible was written did not respect women, yet the Bible praises, rewards, and celebrates women over and over again. They were the first to discover Jesus' empty tomb while the men hid in fear behind locked doors. That's pretty funny, isn't it? Um, they were the ones that went to the tomb on resurrection morning. They had to come back and get Peter and John, and they followed the women back again. Um, and so uh, there's a lot uh, here. Uh, the gospel was already reported that Jesus spoke not only with women, including some that were prostitutes, but also to foreigners, children, lepers, tax collectors. Jesus covered everybody. He wasn't. We're not trying to show Jesus as this man that, uh, is, is different in the fact that he, he ran away from sinners. Jesus ran to sinners. He, he went after sinners. He followed them. He ate in their house. Um, it says in Levi, this is in uh, Luke, uh, Levi gave a great feast at his own house. This is Matthew. Yeah, excuse me. And there were a great number of tax collectors and others who sat down, and the scribes and the Pharisees complained against his disciples, saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered and said unto them, Those who are well don't need a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners are repentant. Jesus didn't come to, just to take care of the rich and the wealthy. He came and he humbled himself and served even those. So he openly spoke to all sorts of people, even those that the count, the, the um, the culture found offensive and worthless. Who were the first ones to be notified of Jesus' birth? Yeah, lowly shepherds cast out of the city up on a hill, and here they are, and Jesus uh, brings the gospel. So um, anyway, uh, just some interesting facts about the Bible. How do we know it's true and some thoughts about it? Becky asked last week about the Apocrypha, and I'm just going to take a couple minutes. Um, I think you'll find some interesting things, as I did. 
um, I wrote it up here, the, the word apocrypha. Uh, I, I, uh, one writer wrote, it's a collection of books four centuries between the Old and the New Testament. So Malachi and Nehemiah were written around 450 uh, B.C. And so between the, that time and the time of Christ born, that's when this the apocrypha was written. Um, the Apocrypha is not scripture. Many Protestants, including Luther, Calvin, and other reformers, have found the collection useful and historical, theologically and spiritual. Uh, discerning readers of the Apocrypha can gain further understanding from first century Judaism, including uh, the Messiah, the fervor over the Messiah. There's a lot of history about what happened to, to the Jews that are recorded in the Apocrypha from 400 B.C. to 1 AD. So there is a lot of history. I won't go into that. Um, the Apocrypha books first appeared, and I, I say books because I'm not still today, I'm not sure how many there are. Um, they first appeared in a translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint. Uh, the Septuagint was produced in Alexandria around 200 BC. So that's when we started seeing the, uh, the Septuagint was the uh, Greeks took the the Old Testament Hebrew and translated it into Greek. And at that time, they included the Apocrypha uh, with it. Um, the period is frequently referred to as the 400 years of silence. There's really, there's no biblical uh, action at all that goes on. At the end of Malachi, until John the Baptist comes and Jesus' birth, there's, God seems to be silent uh, there. Um, the uh, it essentially uh, makes up the blank pages of the Bible, as I said. Now, this is interesting. The word apocrypha, anybody know what it means? It means hidden away or outside. Now, keep that in mind, the word outside. Uh, it's Some people say it's an esteemed writings with hidden uh, and uh, because it's regarded containing mysterious and abstract lore, too profound to be communicated. There's some really bizarre things in some of the Apocrypha books, like uh, Jesus and Mary Magdalene were together. Um, Jesus is supposedly, uh, when he was young, uh, pushed the kid off of a, off the roof and then went down and raised him from the dead. There's, there's kind of bizarre stuff like that uh, in some of these books. So, uh, they are deemed theological suspicious um, by the Jews and the Protestants. Uh, most Protestants flat out reject these writings. Um, so the Roman Catholic and the Orthodox Church, the, the Orthodox, uh, uh, Russian Orthodox, Greek Orthodox, and the Roman Catholic still keep some of the Apocrypha. Uh, this word Apocrypha means outside. The Catholics didn't like that because it meant they weren't uh, biblical. So they came up with this word called deuterocanonical, and it just means second, second canon or second book or second, uh, uh, second Bible, as it were. So they take the part of that. Um, in the day of origin, about 250 uh, B.C., the Apocrypha became the normal part of the liturgy in the church, and this is where it gets interesting. By the time of Augustine and Jerome came, around 350 to 400, this is church history here, 
uh, two opposing views emerged on these writings. Augustine argued for the canonicity of the Apocrypha, drawing from its frequent writings, and Jerome pushed back and um, distinguished between canonical and ecclesiastical tasks. So Jerome would say there's the true Bible, and then there's ecclesiastical tasks that are outside. They're okay to read, but they should be viewed as that. And so um, this, this ultimately in Rome in 382, the Council of Carthage, and then in 397 sided with Augustine, but the two views remained in the church until the Reformation. The, uh, and so um, there, there's all these books, and I'll show you these books in a minute. It's very interesting. Uh, the New American Bible, I found this on the Internet, the English version that most Catholics use in the U.S. includes seven apocrypha um, or deuterocanonical books. I couldn't find that. To, I think they're the book. The books are Wisdom of Solomon, or just Wisdom, Tobit, Maccabees one and two, Barak, Judith, and Ecclesiastes. Uh, I think that's the books they have. Um, the Roman Catholic Council of Trent which went from 1545 to 1563, which condemned, condemned uh, salvation by grace alone through faith alone and still has put an anathema on it today that uh, ruled that the books of the Apocrypha should be canonized. So that's how the Catholics got them in, in there around 1563. Um, in, in response to that, the Protestants pushed back on that in the Westminster Confession of Faith reads this, the books commonly called the Apocrypha, not being of divine inspiration, are not part of the canon of scripture and therefore have no authority in the church of God, nor to be otherwise approved or made use of them or other human writings. So they, the, the, uh, the Presbyterians, man, they went right after it. They said, no, there's no way this is part of the scripture. Other, con uh, other statements, uh, are different. The 39 Articles of Confession from the Standard Church of England, the Anglicans and Episcopals distinguish between canonical and ecclesiastical. So the Episcopals today still see them as not canonical, not as inspired, but as useful. And I think they include them in their service. Um, and so uh, to this day, um, they do that. Here's an interesting chart um, I found. This chart says that the Roman Catholic Church has 12. I won't read them all. It also says the Greek Orthodox have 18, but they can't agree with the Russian Orthodox because they only have 17. And then the Coptic or the Egyptian Christians have 17 also. Uh, and so um, for what it's worth, this is I, I had this in my files. Let me read this to you. You might be surprised who wrote it. The Roman Catholic Church was declared, has declared 11 apocrypha books, not seven, but they said 11. That was stated from the Council of Trent, and again, the First Vatican Council in the 19th century. These decisions are in error. It is unfortunate that Protestants have come to disregard totally the apocrypha the Protestant reformers, while declaring that the apocrypha books were not inspired, still maintained they were very valuable, important specimens, spec, specimens of literature. 
And so they provided the closest view of the period between Malachi and John the Baptist. That was written by League and Air Ministries. So um, for what it's worth, I hope that answers your question, Becky. Yeah, um, it was interesting uh, that, you know, there are still some churches that uh, the Episcopals and the Anglicans that still keep them in their Bibles. So um, I don't know, maybe R.C. Sproul has a different view today. Uh, since he's in heaven, but yes. They do, because there's many things like the story of the Maccabees, obviously, and, and what happened there and, and, and their, their rebellion and the whole um, Jewish rebellion. So they do see them as historically uh, important but not necessarily as they would see it as ecclesiastical, something to read, historical, but not canon, not Bible. So, Tim? Yeah, there are some other interesting things. Uh, some of the Apocrypha books talk about praying for the saints out of heaven, out, out of uh, Hades, and so you get uh, indulgences, right? And so there's a, there's a pragmatic reason to keep the, keep the apocrypha in your, in your, as part of making a canon because you can get money. And so uh, anyway, uh, I don't want to be unfair, but I'm just telling you what I think. And, and like I said, some of the, the Christians still keep it, the professing Christians still keep it in there. There there are, I didn't look a lot, I tried to read what I could this week. There's a lot of bizarre stories also. So there's some stuff that's just, it's like way out there. All right. Um, let me give you this. Um, it's what time is this? Five after. Let me just pass out this chart. I think you'll find this really, I, I, I found this really helpful. Caleb, can you hand out some of these? Hey, Bryce, help me here. Pass this out. I'll take one for Teresa. I think you'll find this really interesting. I found this chart. I've had it in my, I've had it in my notes for years. I'm not even sure where it came from. American Bible Society. It says it's got to be 30 or 40 years old. Um, anyway, if you kind of look at this uh, on the front, it tells you about the Bibles, the second and third century, the Septuagint, which is the Greek. Uh, rendering of the Old Testament, and then 4th century Jerome uh, wrote, had the Latin Vulgate. Uh, interestingly, Jerome was against the Apocrypha, but he was certainly uh, Catholic. 
and then Wycliffe's Bible comes out um, in uh, 1384, uh, and that's really the English. Um, I, I have another book here. John Wycliffe died December 34. First, 1384, following a stroke, in light of the fact that the church made every attempt to stand, stamp out his vestiges of his writing, still today there's 170 manuscript copies are known to still exist. 30 are from the original 1382 translation of Wycliffe himself. 140 remain uh, of his revised uh, version in 1388. His influence was such that 40 years after his death, the Pope had his body exhumed, his, his bones were burned, thrown in the ashes of the River Swift. So the, the Roman church hated him because he translated the word of God into English. So um, the Church of Rome thought it could stamp out uh, and they declared him a heretic. We, we read stuff like this. It, it's not just, I hope you understand why we're doing this. It's not just that we have, want to learn about the Bible, but we want to see that, that God superintended this, yet men paid great price for what they did. Uh, so we can enjoy the Bible. We have it, probably many of us have a dozen copies in our house sitting around, and I, I don't, I, I want us to get a really a greater appreciation for how we got the Bible and, and what it means. Um, if you look down there, Luther's German Bible on the right, uh, 1522. So historically, tell me what happened around 1440. What was probably the greatest invention in 1440 that changed the whole world? Yeah, Gutenberg's printing press. And so you can see from basically from, from Luther down what happened, the printing press came in and we started getting all these copies of God's words. The, um, up until then, it was all hand-scribed, one, one to another. And so uh, I don't think Gutenberg was necessarily a believer. Um, I, interestingly, I read this week, one of the first things he printed besides the Bible were indulgences. So uh, the Roman Catholics got, got him right away and said, will you print this? print these for us. So uh, we recognize him for printing the word of God, but uh, I guess if you're a businessman, you'll just print anything. So um, if you just look through here, Tyndale's New Testament um, was there, and then we just moved down to Geneva Bible in the middle. Who brought the Geneva Bible to America? The, the, the pilgrims. That's what the Bible that they brought with them was the Geneva Bible. Um, even though... Um, the uh, King James was in uh, 15, where is the King James on here? 15, or 1611, so the, the pilgrims brought to Geneva here. 1611, the King James uh, was written uh, and has been probably one of the main uh, Bibles that's used in America and really around the world. And so... Um, and then all these other ones came out uh, the, uh, over the 1960s. This is not, uh, this stops in 82. So um, I'm sure uh, New King James Bible was in uh, 
1982, and then the New American Standard Bible, uh, 1971. So on the back here, you can take time to look at these, um, and it kind of tells you about a little bit about them. You can have this. I found it really interesting. Um, and, uh, and so uh, can you imagine that the Catholics were so mad that the uh, – First of all, Jerome translated into Latin, and then from Latin into English was Wycliffe, and um, they really wanted to control it. And now uh, we have it, and we take it for granted. And so, um, again, just a reminder here. Uh, I think I'll just close this morning with that. Uh, anybody have any comments or questions? Uh, we'll, we'll talk next week. Um, there's three types of translations that are used, three types of methods of translation that are used. One is called for, formal equivalent, and the other is called dynamic functional equivalent, and the other is paraphrase. So we'll look at those terms and see we have different Bibles even amongst us, and they're translated different, differently from the Greek text. And then I'll talk a little bit about uh, the Greek text, and then probably uh, about um, the inspiration of the Word of God, the, the differences between inspiration and revelation and, and those things. So any, any questions before we close? All right, thank you. Appreciate it, and appreciate your patience and time. <laughs>